Welcome everybody. My name is Chris Glass and I am with David Markintel. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Walter Matilda uh, Aviation, which does business as Connect Airlines. Excellent. Welcome to the pod. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Ah, geez. Well, the, <laughs> I'll keep it really short, but the uh, short version of it is uh, I've been in aviation for about 30 plus years. Uh, spent the started my career at Delta Airlines and then uh, did a little stint at Boeing, some time at Airborne Express. Had the uh, wonderful opportunity to start an air, a Part 135 airline called North-South Airways way back in the day. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, the uh, tech bubble uh, wasn't too kind of that. So I found myself going into consulting. And before I knew it, I was a uh, partner with a boutique consultancy called Team SAI, which uh, did pretty well over a multi-year period and ultimately got purchased by Oliver Wyman, uh, where I became the uh, uh, managing partner and general manager of the CABIC uh, Technical Services, Aviation Technical Services Division. Right. Uh, and uh, about a little more than a year ago, I joined up with an old uh, client and colleague of mine, John Thomas, who owned Waltz and Matilda Aviation and came aboard as his chief operating officer to start a 121, uh, part 121 air carrier called Connect Airlines. So that's how I got here. Excellent. Well, it sounds like you've had uh, quite the journey as most people do. Airlines kind of get in your blood. Aviation gets in your blood and it's hard to get out of, eh? No, that's for sure. There's probably more <laughs> stories about that that I can tell for another time. But yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a little bit like the mafia, I think. Right. Once you're in, you can never get out. You never get out. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about Waltzing Matilda. Well, Waltz Matilda has been around since uh, 2008, uh, specifically um, as a Part 135 air carrier. I uh, initially had a couple of uh, citation jets uh, on, on the certificate. Uh, more recently has uh, been growing pretty dramatically, adding a couple of Challenger 604s uh, to, the, wow. to, the, to that certificate. So uh, expanding its uh, capabilities and reach pretty substantially. Um, and it is, it is based in uh, Bedford, uh, uh, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Boston, serving the greater Boston uh, area. Um, uh, but this uh, 121 uh, effort is kind of uh, a significant branch out from that. Uh, and Waltz and Matilda Aviation, or the, the, the 121 division of that, Connect Airlines division of that, uh, is uh, going to be operating uh, Dash 8 400 aircraft, uh, Q400s, from uh, Northeast and Midwest cities into Toronto's uh, Billy Bishop Island Airport. Uh, great up. We have a fantastic uh, two-class product that we're introducing uh, to the um, to the marketplace, and really, and we are uh, in very interestingly, very interestingly, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. We are the launch customer for Universal Hydrogen's uh, all hydrogen powertrain uh, for ATR72 aircraft that's expected to be delivered in uh, 2025. So. We've really embraced the uh, lower emissions and ultimately zero emissions uh, strategy, uh, and we believe that uh, with the, uh, you know, the the sensitivity to environmental considerations and climate change, uh, that the uh, that the marketplace and the passengers uh, will uh, ab you know kind of return to the turboprop world uh, as feeder and connector service uh, to uh, major airlines. 
Right. And with all the focus on high fuel prices as well, that's got to just help drive that sustainability side. It, it, uh, it does. It certainly does. I mean, when you, it's the kind of the double whammy. You know, I, I don't believe that the, uh, uh, you know, when you really kind of think about it, uh, high fuel prices further underscore the economics, the, the, the favorable economics of uh, 70 seat or so uh, size turboprops compared to the 50 to 70 seat RJs that they're uh, usually replacing. Um, and, and then you've got on top of that, the 40% reduction in carbon emissions right. uh, associated with the turboprops, well, at least the Dash 8 anyway, uh, compared to the RJs that they're replacing. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's a really compelling story. I came uh, in a previous career. I came from an airline that had Q400s, and I have a lot of love for the aircraft. It's uh, a very comfortable plane for a turboprop, uh, and I can assume that's why you picked it uh, and the it, operating costs as well. We did. It was it was quite purposeful. I mean, it it has um, you know it's got some great performance numbers, uh, of course, but we we really liked the fact that it was a fairly roomy cabin. Uh, right. We liked the fact that it had enough uh, you know surface area in the cabin to, to allow us to do some interesting things with seat pitch and seats. Um, we liked the fact that it had the, uh, the anti-vibration and noise canceling system in the aircraft, which eliminates one of the uh, more prominent concerns that passengers have, have raised about the aircraft. It was really, you know, the way I kind of look at it, it, the airplane was a little bit late, the Q400 anyway, uh, with the AVNS system it was just a little bit late to the market by the time that big push uh, started with the majors to go put regional jets on everything. And, and uh, you know, we certainly understand why the majors were doing that, but, you know, it's not the same environment as it was 15, 18 years ago when, uh, when those RJs were, were being introduced at that rate, at that clip, that rate. And, you know, I think it's time to, to take a fresh look at it. So I had the uh, luxury of going on, uh, it was Bombardier back at the time who, who was uh, running the Q400s and uh, they had come to my previous airline to kind of give us a sales pitch on the plane and we got to go for a test flight and they actually turned off the noise canceling uh, system and had us compare the differences and that makes quite a difference in sound it is. and everything. It was remarkable how, how much quieter it is once that's turned on. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think, you know, when you take that element to it and you then uh, fast forward or, or acknowledge the, the safety benefits uh, that the 121 industry has undergone, particularly the regional flyers, uh, regional operators. And, right. and there's been a lot of, I know there's been a lot of conversation today uh, with the, the pilot shortages around reduction in pilot hours and my personal view is that that's not going to change. We're going to still have 1,500 and minimum 1,500 pilot hour pilots uh, in the cockpit, and we're still going to have very, very, um, I would call it conservative, uh, safety-oriented views towards high time uh, and you know the combination of high time and low time pilots to avoid the scenario that occurred at Colgan Air where there were two low time pilots in that aircraft at the same time, right. you know, all of those things are going to continue to, uh, to, you know, to, to exist. And I think when you, when you really re reflect upon and, and really take a, take the opportunity to try to send, sell the message that the safety ratings and the safety uh, uh, record of this aircraft post Colgan air uh, is actually quite good. And yeah. that plus the, uh, the improved cabin, 
you know, it really starts to become, you know, make a, a strong point about, well, this is uh, for shorter routes. Uh, this is absolutely a very competitive alternative uh, to regional jets um, in, in, in every measure that you that you want to consider and look at. And I, we, we believe the passengers, you know, that the public will respond. Yeah, well, and, you know, I don't know if you follow a lot of the uh, news up here in Canada, but uh, lately you can't turn on the news without lineups and security delays and uh, six-hour waits and customer service issues at Toronto Pearson International Airport. So I'm guessing that went into a bit of your decision to to head to Billy Bishop and that city center airport. So can you talk to me a little bit about that uh, decision and what advantages that airport holds? Yeah, no, there's no question about it. Uh, That was a huge part of the calculus. Um, You know, first of all, Toronto Pearson, or I'm sorry, Toronto generally is fourth largest catchment market in all of North America. I mean, it is a very, very large market. Uh, and, 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 and to be clear, Pearson will always be a major hub, uh, a yes. major center of flying with this international connect. When I say international, so I'm talking about its long haul international connections around, uh, around the globe, uh, served by, uh, you know, m- several carriers there. But um, when you look at business traffic in particular, point to point business traffic from, from the United States, um, uh, into uh, you know into Toronto, uh, you, you really look at the extra time it takes to uh, navigate through and process through the airport through Pearson. Um, it really presented an interesting advantage that we could provide uh, U.S. travelers in particular, um, you know, from by avoiding or, or giving them an option to avoid all of that extra delay associated with one, the transit time, yeah. transportation time uh, from Pearson uh, into downtown. And then of course, not to mention uh, you know, security and, and immigration and all the rest of those kinds of things. Now we recognize that uh, Billy Bishop today does not have preclearance for, which is an important element for us travelers in particular, um, but, uh, you know, th- there is a uh, you know, strong commitment on the part of the uh, uh, Ports Toronto and the Canadian government to put that in place there at, at uh, Billy Bishop. We, we believe the latest word, the latest report that I or, or uh, communication discussions that, that I've had with Ports Toronto put that into early 2023 Excellent. or sometime in 2023. And, um, you know, when that happens, we think it's going to make it, you know, that a very, very uh, attractive option for business travelers looking to day trips or short trips that they can get in and out, uh, get their work done and get back home. And, and having been, uh, you know, personally spent 20 years in, in consulting and, and flown over 3 million miles uh, with one carrier alone, um, you know, it, you know, I really, you know, you really value those, those road warriors really value being able to get in and get out because they've just got so many customers and clients to see. They they don't have a lot of time at home and they want to cherish every minute that they get. 
Right. And, and a couple extra hours with your kids, it's hard to put a price on that. It's, it's it really hard. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I'm That's a new right. dad myself and I find myself trying to take advantage of as many of those moments as I can to get home and, and go from there. That. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, a bit of a transition for WMA or Waltzing Matilda moving towards the uh, scheduled service. How's that been going as you launch, uh, get close to launch? How's, how's that challenge been and, and uh, how's that journey been for you? Yeah, you know, I, it's it's been a journey to say the least. Um, <laughs> I bet. In 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 many respects, been great. Uh, been in a couple of respects, uh, been pretty difficult, and I'll explain. You know, the the the, the, the setup of the airline, the hiring of people, uh, we've already uh, acquisition of aircraft, building the infrastructure, that has gone um, basically to plan. You know, we we always planned on roughly a 12-month process to get all that in place, and that's inclusive of uh, the FAA certification process, uh, the air carrier certification process, which is, you know, manuals design and, and all the validation steps, et cetera. That has gone as expected. Um, what has not gone as expected is that in the United States, there are really two elements or two, two key requirements for becoming a, a U.S. air carrier. One is uh, to go through the FAA's um, safety and airworthiness process. Uh, that is both from an operational perspective as well as from an airworthiness or a maintenance perspective. And that's very FAA-centric. And, and the second part is a, uh, a, a, an economic fitness and uh, public convenience process uh, with the Department of Transportation. Now, in, in our in, in our government here in the United States, the, the, uh, the FAA technically works for the DOT, but the, the um, uh, economic fitness division of the DOT is very, very different from the FAA. And this is, in effect, a, a commercial license, for lack of a better description. And, okay. Uh, there is a, there, there's extensive vetting of the, of the financials of the company, of the, of the business plan of the company, of the leadership team of the company. And um, that has been challenged uh, or a challenge from a timing standpoint. The right. DOT, we filed our application on April 2nd of 2021, and we are at this point still waiting for final oh. DOT approval. In fact, it's become such a, a challenge for us. We've completed all of the FAA steps except for the very last one, which is proving runs. And the only reason why we haven't done preview runs is because the FAA requires that the DOT commercial, or the, you know, uh, what's called a show cause order for public necessity, has to be issued in order for the FAA to proceed with the proving runs. So the, the, that's a long way of saying the, the long pole in the tent is the DOT, and we are still waiting for that to get done. Now, that said, we are, you know, we remain confident. Um, we've, uh, we've been advised uh, by the DOT informal communications with them that our application is complete, that they're uh, reviewing, is working its way through the, uh, through the process. We're not, uh, you know, not 100% clear as to what they're working on at the moment, but uh, right. we are hopeful and anxious that uh, we will see uh, an announcement coming out of the DOT very shortly, and then, and then we're ready to go do our proving runs. And let's just say, call it six to, you know, six weeks after, uh, after the the we received notification that from the DOT, we will have our air carrier certificate and ready to go sell tickets and start serving the public. 
Well, that's exciting times uh, to get that that close to getting off the ground. Yeah, it is. It is. We're just uh, very fingers crossed and, uh, you know, finger and toes and all the rest of that. Just just very anxious and biting at the bit to get started. Uh, so the next place I really want to want to talk about, you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier when you said we'll definitely be talking about it later on in the podcast. But uh, you were talking about your fuel uh, fuel initiatives and sustainability. I believe it's called Project Zero. Uh, can you tell me about that and, and uh, the decision to go in that direction? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it it it's a reflection of a, a long term view of where the market needs to go and, and where it is in fact heading. Uh, and while there are some clearly cha- you know, technical challenges uh, along the way, this is where it's going. I mean, I, you know, without turning into a political conversation uh, around climate change, I, I think I will just simply say it, that there is an increasingly accepted acknowledgement that climate change is having an effect on society and it's having an effect on our earth, right? Uh, and that this is caused by carbon emissions. And governments around the world are increasingly uh, looking to various industries to reduce their carbon footprints. Um, and aviation is one uh, that is, is, is challenged in this regard. And I'm not saying it's challenged from a, from a policy perspective. It's challenged from a technology perspective. Right, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to harken back to my old engineering days and thermodynamics, but which I'll try to avoid since I don't remember enough about <laughs> it. But uh, you know, the net of it is, is that our current jet, uh, you know, jet fuel burning engines, whether they be turboprops or, or, or turbofans, you know, they, from a energy density consumption and use standpoint, specific energy perspective, they're pretty efficient. They are pretty efficient. We get a lot of power uh, out of these machines and out of that kerosene fuel. However, that kerosene fuel produces a certain degree of emissions on its own when it's burned. And of course, it requires uh, the the, uh, emitting of of, of carbon just to get it out of the ground, right? And and work its way through the, um, you know, through the... uh, The process. The refining process. process, Yeah. So, you know... you know, long, long way of saying, it, you know, there's a lot of recognition in the public and we think it will continue to grow that they're not, there has to be uh, better solutions and aviation has to take its part. Now, obviously there's multiple technologies that are being considered uh, and evaluated by all the leading manufacturers. And, and, and look, they're a lot smarter than I am and, and all the rest of that. But, you know, it seems to be evolving down into, let's call it, uh, uh, two to three buckets of, uh, of opportunity, longer range. One of those, of course, are battery, you know, purely battery powered uh, aircraft for which the weight and density of batteries will probably only work for short, very, very short haul, almost air taxi type styles. I mean, that's yeah, I've seen it for those that. little harbor planes that are flying right, 10, 15 right. minute and flights. Yeah, extremely short. Right. Um, but then when you get into, uh, you know, beyond that, the, the, the most viable solution, and there's lots of talk about hybrid solutions, but the, the, the next level of that is hydrogen. Yeah. And, and there are really two forms of that. There is hydrogen fuel cells, and then there's actually burning uh, some form of hydrogen in a gas breathing engine, you know, or a gas breathing turbine of some form. 
And it was the, uh, the, the, the hydrogen fuel cell approach that we found to be the most uh, near term and viable for the markets that we were looking to serve, that being, again, the regional connector market uh, with an improved product. And that's what led us uh, to starting to consider uh, various uh, technical solutions. And, and we really, at the end of the day, became most uh, comfortable with Universal Hydrogen's approach, their leadership team, their capitalization, their ability to deliver, because it's more than just simply the technology, right? I yeah. mean, it, 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 there's the technology associated with the electric motor and getting that cert certified, but then there's the, the technology associated with the fuel cell. Uh, and then in the case of the these kinds of solutions, the the uh, you know how do you you know how do you bring hydrogen into that fuel cell? It's not a static fuel cell, so that means you need an infrastructure to deliver liquid hydrogen in tanks to the aircraft to be able to 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 go you know to to, um, uh, to integrate with the aircraft and with those fuel cells and we which is a you know a large infrastructure project when you think about you know, with multiple, multiple partners. Products partners across the right. across the globe uh, or across the at least within a geography right multiple partners at the airports themselves um and uh, you know it, this is a significant enterprise which requires significant capital and we felt very very uh, good about universal hydrogen's ability to deliver on that so that's the reason why we ended up making the the decision to go with the universal hydrogen approach uh for their for their you know uh, in their powertrain Excellent. And, and you know, this is going to look like a, a really good business decision if fuel stays the way it is. And, uh, you know, we hear from a lot of our customers that fuel sustainability uh, is uh, top of mind when it comes to how they run their operations. So uh, is yeah, there any well, I, I'm a big believer that I'm sorry to interrupt there, but, no, you know, I, I'm a big believer that it's more than just pure economics. I, oh, you know, of course. I, what's, what's, what's really, uh, and, you know, People are welcome to disagree with me on this, but you know, it, at some point we get to all right. If if fuel consumption, let's, let's call it carbon fuels consumption, goes down substantially, one might argue, well, the price of fuels will go down substantially uh, because it's a you know supply and demand. There's not as much demand for right. that. Uh, it, that may be you know that could be argued true, but I think that. That what will start to happen is we will see the effects of carbon taxing and yeah. other things that are done by governments, you know, global uh, uh, state government or, uh, you know, uh, national governments, um, you know, who are going to tax carbon, carbon emitting yeah. uh, 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 sources of energy. And, and for the purpose of that, they are going to purposely try to drive this out of the marketplace, notwithstanding what the, the price of extraction is. And, and, and that, at the end of the day, I think, you know, we're seeing a willingness uh, and, and, you know, to, to tax the carbon. And I think that that's what's going to eventually happen. And while there will be ebbs and flows of that and some countries more earlier adopters than others, I mean, many of us remember back to the days when, uh, the the EU attempted a, I don't know this has been maybe eight eight nine years ago or maybe something close to that attempted a fairly comprehensive uh, carbon tax on air on uh, European airlines and it really kind of fell apart because they didn't have enough continuity between how are you going to tax in different regimes and right. in non EU countries and so on and so forth 
but, you know, eventually this gets to a point where there's enough momentum around multiple uh, uh, national governments that this starts to happen. And we believe that this will happen. And we're trying to be kind of ahead of that curve uh, when it does. Well, that gives you the opportunity to uh, drive the change and and be an active partner in, in it, as opposed to joining the crowd later once all of these decisions are made, these infrastructure decisions that you talk about, uh, what the leading technology is going to be. You can either leave that charge or you can be led by other people and have less control over it. So it, it makes a lot of sense to be an it's early adopter bet. in this That's space. Sure. It is a big That's bet, but if, if it pays off, it's going to be a very big payoff, I think. Anyway, I, I think you're on the right track here. Oh, thanks, Chris. We, we think so too. With that, we're we're running up on the time, so we were we we're going for about half an hour here. So, uh, question for you: With you said that you reference that you have traveled over three million miles. Is that what you said? Yeah, I've I've been a, a pretty big <laughs> frequent flyer. <laughs> wow. Okay, so you get the separate check in when you go and all that kind of stuff. I can imagine. Well, I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, not that often. <laughs> So just a lot of time doing it, many, many years. Fair enough. So you spent the time in the line. Where's your favorite place to go? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I, that's a difficult question because I like, generally I would say I like to travel, period. Um, right. uh, I love the U.S. West. Um, I, you know, domestically, any chance I get to go out west into the mountains or to the, uh, to the oceans of, of, of California or, or Colorado, I, I'm – you know, I'm kind of in my dream spot, uh, but I'm also I, I love I love Europe. I've spent a lot of time in Asia. I mean, I've I've just been very blessed. I love foreign cultures, and I've had yeah. it's been a great opportunity, and I've been very blessed to have a chance to experience those those cultures and get to know people around the globe. Well, if you like mountains, uh, I don't know if you've been up to Calgary yet, but we are 45 yeah. minutes away from Banff, uh, Canmore, and some of the beautiful, most beautiful skiing you've ever seen. So next time you're uh, in Calgary, we're going to have to take you up. And you said you've been there before, but we'd love to take I you have. up again. I, I, used, I, I bought my very, I, I don't own it anymore, but I bought my very first airplane out of Calgary. Wow. Okay. And, so you're very and, familiar. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, got a, I, I flew it home from, from Calgary. I was living in Washington at the time. Uh, picked it up, bought it, uh, flew around Banff and all over there, and then uh, took it down to uh, Glacier National Park and wow. out west uh, to Washington. What was that plane? What what type of plane was that? It was a Grumman Tiger. Oh wow, very cool. Not not the Citation you were talking about earlier. That's no, a, no, no, no. <laughs> a couple the, million away. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a couple a couple million uh, cheaper. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, we look forward to seeing Connect Airlines progress uh, as they grow and seeing uh, you guys hit the skies. So thank you so much for spending some time on the jump seat. And uh, we look forward to having more conversations with you in the future. Thanks a lot, Chris. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. And have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Jump Seat. Catch the next episode on your favorite streaming platform and follow us on LinkedIn at Flight.